The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate. I have a master's in psychology, baby. Hell yeah. I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bi-con, bisexual icon, wink, and I somehow locked my hips up again. <laughs> oh my God, you graduated. I did it. Woo! Now what? I retire. Okay, great. I immediately go into retirement. Because this <laughs> month alone, wedding, graduate, uh-huh. book deal. Yeah. And then is there anything I'm missing? And no, that's about it. Oh, I'm getting my eyelash extensions again. So that's really thrilling for me. Okay. That'll definitely <laughs> go up there. Yeah, that'll definitely go up there. Wow. I know. It's a it's a surreal time. But I definitely was on on the brink of burnout a couple of weeks ago. I'm doing a lot better. I also added Wellbutrin back into the med rotation. Okay. I've only been on it a few days, so I don't know if I'm just on the high of all the good news or if it's working well, but I'm a happy I'm a happy lady in this moment. Yeah, I mean, do you like most of it is taken care of, graduating, taken care of. A uh, book deal, well, you still have to write the book. I have to write the book. That yeah. is a problem. And <laughs> you finish, and you still, I have to finish the book, but yes. <laughs> and you still have to get married. But when this comes out, I will be married. I oh, I do have to write my wedding vows. You haven't done that yet? No, and I don't have anything really to say. Yes, you do. What do you mean you don't have anything to say? Like, I keep trying to think of like a clever format or like, you know, like some sort of like structure to it. Uh, And I got nothing. And there's so much pressure. You know, if I was just writing like sappy vows, I could do it. Yeah. So why not do that? Well, because I've made this whole stink that I want them to be funny. Okay. did you ever Josh Gondelman wrote an article for The New York Times when he was getting married about the pressure of being a comedian and doing your vows? Yeah. It's and a it's lot. real. Yeah. If you did so sappy and so and, and you got like a, a violinist to like play behind you and you made it like <laughs> so over the top, that would be shocking. I know. I woke John up at like 530 in the morning the other day and was like, I got nothing. And he was like, you're toast. <laughs> and then well, he just kept shouting that I was toast <laughs> for well, an hour he, in the middle of the night. <laughs> does he have it like so down? He's tinkering. He's not done, but he at least appears to have some sort of structure to his. Uh Uh-oh. I know. But I, okay, but I think you should just speak from the heart. I don't think you need, I know, I know, I know. But I don't think if if that's what's calling you, I mean, we'll know after this, you know, by the time this episode comes out, we'll know what you've done. What I did. Which is, I assume, just throw a bunch of smoke bombs down and then disappear. (laughs) Now that's thinking. Yeah, I I know jokes. <laughs> well, this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartful advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. Brutal, absolutely brutal. Yeah, I don't I don't know what direction I'll go. I need to sit down and really think it through. But hopefully I'm gonna go first. So that takes some of the pressure off. Oh. And this is like Love is Blind, where you say your vows and then he gets to say yes or no. <laughs> 
<laughs> we have got a great episode for everyone today. We're going to be talking to Roxy Manning, PhD, all about anti-racism and compassion. And later, I picked the topic, funniest IRL moments. I found some on my phone. Oh, good. Yeah. I was hoping you would come prepared. Yeah, I found a few. <laughs> Most of mine involved my dad. Oh, prankster <laughs> Ken Raskin. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Roxy Manning. So stay tuned. Just between us. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Dr. Roxy Manning, author of How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations, a clinical psychologist with a deep understanding of compassion and its role in fostering inclusivity. Hello, Dr. Roxy Manning. <laughs> Hello. I'm so delighted to be here. Oh, we're so excited to have you. I feel like having a specific look into anti-racism and how people can be more effective at it is something our listeners are probably super eager for. Yes, for sure. And so I'd love to just sort of start off with like, how do you define anti-racism? Yeah, so the definition I love comes from the work of Dr. Ibram Kendi, right? To make it really simple, it's about the impact. If you're doing something and it has an impact, it's negatively impacting one group, then it's racist. And if you're doing something that is helping another group, supporting or having a neutral impact, then it's anti-racist. But I definitely think about anti-racism as countering all of the generations of racism that we had. So I want actions that are actually supporting change and improvement for groups that have been historically oppressed. Can you give an example of uh, something that would be considered anti-racist? Absolutely. So sometimes when I work with organizations, they're like, well, we are so anti-racist, right? We have a neutral, completely unbiased hiring practice. We only go for the best people from the best schools. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's actually kind of racist. Because if you are going to the best college, you probably went to the best high school. You probably live in a good neighborhood. And there are lots of a history of racism that influences where you live, what zip code you live in, what schools you have. So saying I'm just hiring everyone who went to the best college isn't anti-racist. But if I say, you know, I'm actually going to go out there and either go to some schools in historically black colleges or some of the colleges that help that focus on groups that are oppressed, and I'm going to recruit from that program, then that's anti-racist, that I'm actually doing something that's changing what has happened in the past. Or if I say I'm not looking at the best schools, I'm actually doing outreach to every school, including the community colleges, and looking for the best person who's able to pass like our metrics, that's anti-racist. Mm -hmm. I love that. This is a personal question that I've grappled with a lot, mm -hmm. which is like, I feel like there is such disagreement about how to deal with people in our circles who are mm -hmm. racist and they, people that would deny that they're racist but who vote for Republicans. And I would argue at this mm. point to vote Republican is to accept racism and to promote racism. But we have to keep talking with them. Like we have to like, you know, you can't just cut people out or like then people become too hard, you know, too polarized. And, you know, and like, what is your feeling about that, about like keeping people in your life that, you know, are supporting these policies that are directly racist? Oh, this, this question has multiple levels for me. So I'm going to get <laughs> to all of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so first, hard question. What's your ethnic background? Uh, Jewish. 
Okay. And are you a white Jew? Yes. Okay. So one of the things that I tell folks, especially folks who identify as white, is when you have those difficult conversations with the people in your circle who are doing actions that are racist, you're helping me. You're preventing me from being the only person to have to have these mm-hmm. conversations. So I want, as long as you have the capacity and the willingness, that you reach out to those folks in your life, that you take on the burden of having those difficult conversations. That said, there is no demand about it. So I want everyone to do what actually works for them. Today, you might have like lots of energy. You're willing to have that conversation. Maybe two weeks from now, you're like, you know, there's been a lot going on. The podcast blew up. I don't have the time. And so you decided I can't have that conversation right now. But if everyone has these conversations when they have the capacity and give the message that racism and anti-racism is not just a colored people's issue, like they used to say, that's how change happens. So I want both. I want you to step up when you can and also honor your capacity when you can't. But I think sometimes like you're not even necessarily having conversations with these people because like in their head, mm-hmm. they're like, I'm not racist. Or like racist, like I've had someone, you know, I'm related to through marriages be like, I'm not racist. I vote for Trump, but like I'm colorblind. Like, where do you even where do you even go from that? So this is one of the ways we can talk about how to have effective conversations, right? You know, and I'm guessing you've already had the experience. And if you start saying, well, if you vote for Trump, it means you're voting for this policy and it has this impact and it's racist. They just don't hear it. They're not interested because that's not actually what moves people's hearts. So. Again, if you're white, if you have the capacity to do this, start out with, hmm, so why are you voting for Trump, right? Why is that important to you? Because honestly, Trump isn't good for anybody. Mm. (laughs) So what's going on that's making them think that he's the person to vote for? Have some of the conversations that start in empathy and understanding what's motivating the person and help them see that there are other ways that they can get those needs met. Whatever their reason is, there's probably a different strategy that honestly will be more effective. So somebody who says, you know, gosh, I've been struggling. I don't have, I don't have work. And Trump says he's all about getting us work. You can help them think like, well, you know, there are these policies that this, this, this senator has been producing that I actually think will get you more work and that can actually support the kind of economic stimulation that we need. So help them see that there are other alternatives. So that's one piece. The second piece is if the person is 100% convinced and resistant to any kind of dialogue, Talk to them about the impact for you on when people like Trump get elected. So it can be something like, like when I've talked to certain family members, it's not necessarily even about the racism, if that's not what they want to hear. It might be, you know, when I think about Trump being elected, I have a daughter. And when I think about the legislation that's being passed and how that impacts their freedom, their ability to take care of their bodies, to make their own choices, I'm really worried about the impact. Then I might tell a personal story about my experience with this. And why this is not just like this theoretical thing, but something that really is about like my heart, my needs, and invite them into that world with me. When we touch people, when we can help them see us and the other side as humans, as people who are just like them, they're more willing to talk. They're more willing to possibly change their opinions. How would you define empathy? Yeah. So for me, empathy is sometimes it's helpful to talk about what it's not first, (laughs) right? So it's not sympathy. It's not, I feel sorry for you. Oh my God, you poor person. Not pity or anything like that. And it's really about understanding the other person, really understanding what their needs are, what's motivating them, what's important to them, what they're feeling, and reflecting that back to them, helping them see that not only do you understand my perspective, that you're doing it non judgmentally. 
So empathy is always coming from a place, not of acceptance. And I always tell people that I can empathize with the person who's voting for Trump without accepting that what they're doing is something that I would want to do. But it's that I'm trying to understand what's important to them. Why are they doing this? What are their values? And holding that understanding with a lack of judgment. It's so hard because it's often that they don't have any empathy for us back. Yes. And I think that's the hardest thing, right? There's always this idea that, well, if they don't have empathy for me, why would I have empathy for them, right? How come I'm the person in the power down position who's always having to do the work of empathizing? Right. And the two things I say for that is that's one of the reasons why I want every single person who says they want to be an ally to step up and do the empathy. You know, if you, if I can't do it, if I'm tired, if I'm exhausted, please just jump in, tap, tap me out, right? So that's one of the things that we can do when we're allies. Take on that burden of empathizing because people need empathy in order to change. That said, I also think it's important to have somebody take that first step. Somebody who says, you know what? I'm willing to hear you. And I say that again with the caveat that only do that if you have the capacity. There's no shit about it. There's no demand. There's no like, if I'm going to be a good anti-racist, I'm going to empathize with you. Do what you have the capacity to do. What if it is someone who it would say, oh, well, I'm racist, which I know is strange. But like as a as a trans, I'm white as well. And but as a trans person, there are people who are just like, no, I'm transphobic. I'm anti-trans people. Mm -hmm. Like, that's just what I am. So like, what if someone's just like, no, I, I just don't, I don't think black people are as good. You know what I mean? Like, wh what do you even oh, totally, <laughs> do there? Totally. <laughs> when I was in college, there was a professor who was like, totally like putting forth that like black folks are not as smart. There's like the bell curve and it proves it, right? <laughs> so I totally get this. You don't have to talk to that person. <laughs> oh, really? That's too cause. Absolutely. <laughs> How to have anti-racist conversations is not about saying I have to have every single conversation. You talking to that person and listening to their hate, it's violence, mm. right? You are like doing harm to your well-being. So you don't have to do that if you don't want to. And I always tell people that it's about choice. So you, it's about approaching people who you think might be willing to be approached. Not always, no. Like, I definitely have those conversations because I'm choosing to with the people who are like, I hate Black people, I don't understand y'all, y'all are all violent, right? I'm happy to have those conversations with some of those people, but I do it on my own terms when I'm ready to do it, when I have the energy. Mm -hmm. What I'm getting at is there is no demand that if you're the Black person at work who's getting a lot of stuff coming at you, there is nothing that says that the only thing you need to do is go talk to that person. That's when you go to HR. That's when you call in your allies. You can get a lot of support. This is all around. One of the things that's the foundation of my work is nonviolent communication. And one of the beliefs of nonviolent communication is that there are multiple strategies to meet any need, right? So if you think I'm the only person who has that conversation, I hate to tell you there are, I don't know what, 300 billion other people on this planet? No, there's 7 billion people. <laughs> <laughs> number is, right? <laughs> But there are a lot of other people There's who can have this conversation. There might be multiple dimensions. We don't yeah, know. We there don't could know. be that many. Exactly. <laughs> oh my God. We'll go into this, to the multiverse, right? Yeah. But there will be someone else who can have this conversation. So you don't ever have to feel a demand to engage in a conversation. And in fact, I have had people who insist, even well-meaning allies, I'm going to have this conversation with you. And I'm just like, it's not serving me. It's not helping me. It's not doing anything for me. Why would I want to put my time and energy there? It's another way that the time and energy 
of folks in that power down position gets co-opted and is at the service of the person with more power. I know it must feel so there's so much guilt or so much like fear, like, oh, well, I, I have to do it. Like I'm in this position and it's it's my work. And if I don't do it, nobody's going to do it. And that person will go on and keep being racist. And like there's so mm. much undue pressure on um, the person in the, as you say, power down position. Mm-hmm. There can be. And that's part of the work that we need to do when we're in that position is to free ourselves from that. Right. So I'm aware that, yes, there are times like I'm in a meeting and something's going down and I'm really clear that if I don't speak up, nobody else will. Yeah. And sometimes I choose not to speak up because I need to be kind to myself in addition to fight racism. Yeah. Because if I'm not kind to myself, I'm going to burn out and then no one's going to have that conversation. Right. So it's always about assessing what's my capacity? What am I able to do in this moment? Knowing that you're going to be in that fight again next week, two weeks from now, (laughs) 10 years from now, unfortunately. Yeah. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you all about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Right before I found out about this project, my mom made an offhand comment about wanting to write a memoir because she had such a wild childhood and there are all these things she's never really talked to us about. But asking someone to sit down and write a memoir is kind of daunting. So then I got her mylifeinabook.com and now she's getting prompts to answer on a weekly basis and it's a lot easier than just undertaking an entire memoir. I'm so excited to see what my mom does with mylifeinabook.com because she's someone who doesn't always feel comfortable just sharing about herself, but having these prompts and knowing that I really want to hear her answers is going to inspire her to probably share more with me about her life and her upbringing than I've ever been shared with before. So I'm so excited for that. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code just between us at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com. Use code just between us for 10% off today. Hi everyone, Allison here. Anyone who knows me well knows that I love to read. I am always looking for new books and that is why I'm so excited that this episode is sponsored by Book of the Month. Book of the Month's mission is to help readers discover new books they love and to promote the work of emerging authors. It was so fun for me to get to pick which book I wanted to read this month and have it shipped right to my door. Book of the Month makes it easy to decide which book to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles. They pick some of the best 
new books for you to choose from. All the books are good, so you can't go wrong. Every aspect of the Book of the Month experience is designed to be fun and special for readers. They have a highly anticipated release at the beginning of each month. Books are delivered in this really adorable bright blue box, and there's a fun app to help you pick your book and track your reading process. They also offer great values on new release hardcover fiction. It's much cheaper than other options. Shipping is always free. And with a loyalty program, you get rewards and even lower prices the longer you stay as a member. My first book from Book of the Month was The Husbands by Holly Gramazio. I am tearing through this book. It is so fun. It's basically about this woman who one day comes home and there's a husband in her apartment. And she's like, where did you come from? And then she figures out that every time her new husband goes into the attic, a new husband comes out. And she's, she's like shuffling through all these different husbands from the attic, trying to figure out which one is the best. It is right up my alley and I love it so much. So if you want to take part in Book of the Month and have a brand new book shipped right to your door every single month, go to bookofthemonth.com and get your first book for $5 with code PEDALS. That's $5 off with code PEDALS. I cannot recommend this enough. I'm so curious how your background as a psychologist shapes how you approach this work. Mm-hmm. So one of the big pieces for me, I think, is this thing that we've been talking about, that as a psychologist, I'm aware that we burn out and that it's really easy to kind of get into this place of either feeling completely stuck, a lot of hopelessness, a lot of despair, and that we need to have practices that support us in dealing with that. Or we get into that super angry place, right? It's like we start to see everybody as a threat. We develop narratives about how the world is and that people aren't capable of change. And that also prevents us from being effective. So I'm always like one of the big, I don't know, premises of psychology is that we can change. Human beings change. We are not stuck in whatever situation we're in forever. And that's the foundation of my work. That even that family member who's telling you like, you know, for the 20th Thanksgiving dinner, Yeah, but you know, Trump was the perfect person. We need to get him elected again. (laughs) Even that person can change. And it's always around, how can I find an avenue to support that change that's also not going to be draining me completely? As a psychologist, I'd also say that our sustainability, our self-care is also really key for me in being able to do this work effectively. Can you share like an effective conversation you've had with someone, like how like you maybe personally have been able to change someone's mind about something? Absolutely. So for quite a number of years, the pandemic, you know, stopped everything. So I haven't been doing it since the pandemic. I don't know if it ended, but since things opened up, that's a better word. From 2007, I did a retreat every single year on social justice leadership. And essentially, the retreat was around supporting conversations between global majority people and white folks. And I don't know if your podcast listeners will know the term global majority. Should I? No. Yeah. Can you explain it? Yeah, I love this term. So there's this great researcher in Britain called Rosemary Campbell Stevens. She's a Black woman. And she came up with the term global majority because usually we say minority, right? But we know, like, even if we say minority is just about the numbers, if you say majority and minority, minority has this, like, lesser than feeling to it. There's this nuance there. And so it's kind of perpetuating and supporting this belief that global majority people who I'm about to define are less than, in some way, white folks. Mm. And so she said, well, actually, when we look at the numbers in the world, if we look at Black, Brown, African, Asian, 
indigenous, indigenous to the global south, like all of these groups, Muslim or rather Arab, that all of those folks together are 85% of the rural population. So even if we talk about numbers, why are we calling them the minorities, right? Mm. So she uses the term global majority to kind of flip over that idea that these folks are less than, these folks are minorities. They don't belong somehow. And I love that term. And I also use it because it transfers across every context. Like right now I'm in Brazil. And what Black means in Brazil is very different than what it means in the U.S., but global majority works everywhere. Mm -hmm. Okay. Going back to this idea, so this retreat was bringing global majority and white folks together in conversation. Generally, this was an optional retreat, so you didn't show up to this retreat unless a part of you was like, yes, I want to be in conversation. I'm going to be a great ally. But just because we had that intention doesn't mean we were always there. And so there was a person who would show up at this retreat. I think he came for like five years. And still, he didn't get it. He did not get it. And he would do something in the group that would end up being really painful for a global majority person. And when he did, he would collapse. It would be like, oh, my gosh, no, you're saying you're you're attacking me because I'm white or you're attacking me because, you know, um, you don't you don't see my intention or how wonderfully hard I'm trying. And he just could not get it. And so. Some of the conversations we had, and like I said, five years, this has been, (laughs) it took a while. And it's important for people to get that this isn't like, you know, we're going to have one conversation and everything's going to change. The person's, ah, I'm enlightened, right? (laughs) So it took a while, (laughs) if only. (laughs) We would do things like we started out with empathy. We started out with taking him out of the setting so that while he was getting empathy, it wasn't triggering the global majority folks, right? Because if you've just said something that was hard for me, I don't want to have to listen to you talking about like how you're not being seen for your intentions. But it was clear that until he had that conversation, until he got that someone saw how hard he was trying, he wasn't really open to anything else. There was all of this anxiety coming up. So lots of empathy around, we want to hear you. We want to understand why it is that these behaviors are being maintained. Then the conversations start to kind of break down some of the impacts for him. So when you said this, did you understand the impact? Did you understand the meaning that someone might take from what you said, no matter how well-meaning it was, and what we can do differently so that you're not having that kind of impact? And the heart of these conversations were connecting to what his values were, what brought him to this retreat in the first place, and pointing out that gap. If we're trying to tell you that what you're doing is causing harm, and you're falling apart, you're like crying and upset and not listening to us, the problem still exists. You're not actually hearing us. So can you actually slow down and listen to, reflect back and say what we're telling you the impact is, and then coaching him on what can he do differently? So those are some of the conversations I've had. And I mean, there's so many different kinds like this. So he just needed to hear you guys say, we understand that you're working really hard. And he needed somebody to say, not a global majority person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to add, though, it's not enough. It's not just that he had to hear that, because i got to say, global majority folks, trans folks, we've been doing that all the time, right? Mm-hmm. We're always showing up with, like, we get it. We get that you're trying. We get that you've misgendered me, like, five million times and that you're trying. That's not enough. That doesn't lead to change. It's also about how can I really make sure that you get the impact of what you're doing mm-hmm. and invite you, like, here's what you can do instead. Mm-hmm. Or go Google it. I love telling people, anything I'm going to tell you is on Google. Go Google it mm-hmm. and find out what are some actions you can do instead so you don't keep doing this thing that you tell me you don't want to do. So it's not just enough to empathy. I don't want to give anyone that message right. that all he needed was empathy. It's also that invitation to listen to the impact and acknowledge it. 
I think you're touching on something that happens a lot, which is like people who believe that they're anti-racist and they don't have a racist bone mm. in their body. And then they get even sometimes very gently called in about a behavior and suddenly a wall goes up, defensiveness like comes out and like mm -hmm. they can't even they would rather that you be wrong than that they did mm -hmm. something racist yeah, unintentionally. And so like, how do we navigate that? Because like, at least for me, I just believe that we've all been raised to be racist. Like it mm -hmm. like it involves active work. It involves unlearning yeah. things. It involves like second guessing your own thoughts and questioning things. But some people think that like, if you have to do that, then that means you're a bad person. So therefore they can't have ever made a mistake. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think one of the things you named that I really love is the idea that for so many people, there's this thought that if I admit that I have done something that's racist, I'm a bad person. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the problems with the whole conversation about race in the United States, that we've been really clear that racism is bad. And we've also given this solid message. And if you're racist, it means you're a bad person. But that doesn't acknowledge that we're in this environment where white supremacy beliefs are everywhere. Mm -hmm. They're in like our media, they're in everything that we do. And because of that, there is no way that even I, like I know that there are times when I show up in ways that are racist, even when I'm trying not to. And if the only strategy is, if I do something that's racist, it means I'm bad, we're going to be like, no, no, lots of psychological defenses and try to prevent that. So instead, I like to say you are doing something that's having a harmful impact. Doesn't mean you're a bad person, but it does mean you need to address it. That's one piece. The other piece I mentioned, um, I told you all before the call, I'm in Brazil right now. I'm at a retreat and we were having some amazing conversations about race at this retreat. And it included the folks here who identify as black talking about the impact that they've experienced from some of the folks who are white. And even in the middle of like a conversation in, you know, this, this is a group of 96 people, right? So in a conversation in a big group, there was a black person who named an impact and a white person started going into like, oh, I just realized that I did a bad thing. And, and I was like, I'm going to stop you right there. Okay. I'm not going to let you go any further because what you're doing right now is asking us to take care of you. Mm -hmm. And I would much rather that you even step out of the room got some support and came back in when you're ready to hear the other person. Because anything else is continuing the patterns that say Black folks need to take care of white folks. Mm -hmm. And that's not what we're going to do here. So it's partly being really clear. I'm not saying he's bad, right? I'm just saying what you're doing is part of this pattern. So being really clear about knowing and naming the patterns and inviting the person to, here's how you can take care of yourself. And here's a conversation I'm willing to have with you, which is about hearing and acknowledging my impact. Yeah, it's the difference or the nuance of they did a racist thing versus they are racist going through the history of the person. And like, I think people are so scared of one being embarrassed, being foolish. That's why they don't ever change their opinion. Imagine that that person at Thanksgiving who's been going on about Trump for years and then comes back to the sixth Thanksgiving and is like, I've actually changed my mind and I know that Trump is bad now. That's like going there with your tail between your legs and admitting that you were wrong about something for years and years, which everyone seems pretty adverse to doing. And then also like the reaction of, well, I'm not a, like the label of racist versus like that person at the retreat going, oh, I just did a bad thing. They're worried about the label then. But like right. that again is just like 
all of those things are just about yourself. It's just this kind of like self-interest sort of what am I going to look like thing. Yes. I love that. I love this because it's also helping people see that, right? That in the moment that you're going on about, I did a bad thing or how can I tell people that I was wrong, right? It's still focused on, I need to be seen. I need to be like accepted and belonging. And those are important needs. We all need that. And that's part of what maintains this behavior. If I worry that you're going to reject me because I did this thing, I don't want to own that I did that thing because who wants to be rejected? Mm -hmm. So helping people see that, you know, when you show up and you actually tell me that what you did had an impact and you're willing to be in the fire with me, I have a lot more acceptance for you and a lot more authenticity about being in relationship with you than when I think we are always going to be superficial. Yeah. It also comes with like restorative justice, right? Because if you believe in restorative justice or in abolition or anything like that, then you have to be able to accept that you've done something wrong. Let's say I've done something racist in my life, which I'm sure I have or no, I have. So you've you've done something racist and then you have to be able to be like, and that can coexist with me wanting to correct and yes. fix and like, if other if if some people from that group don't accept that, that's their right to not accept that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. some people do accept that, that's their right as well. Yeah. And it's like you can go, you know, you can also sort of do a thing of like, at least for me with transness, I go, hey, like I've messed up too. You know, I I, I just sort of live in empathy with the person. But like you said, there's no obligation for that. And then you as the or me as the white person has to go. Some people will forgive. Some people won't. And and some people will think what I'm doing is enough. And some people won't. And them's the breaks. And I like this idea of like, is it enough? Is the way that I'm responding enough, sharing yeah. that I've had an impact enough? Right. And I always say, ask the person, you know, if I know that I did something right. and I'm clear on the impact, the first thing I want to do is address that impact. So if I did something like I'm at a a retreat, so even this like little thing, like I was in line and someone cuts in front of me Mm -hmm. and it's like, there are lots of people before and after me in line, but you cut in front of the one black person, right? Mm -hmm. And if I'm like, dude, what did you just do? And you're like, oh, I had an impact. The response is not to say, oh my gosh, I'm feeling bad. I can't believe I did this. I'm like, all I want to do is have my dinner. I don't want to have this conversation with you. (laughs) The way to deal with that impact is to say, Thanks for raising my awareness. I'm going to go to the back of the line, mm-hmm. right? So it's really thinking about what's the action I can take that's connected to the impact that I'm having. And you can check in with the person after dinner, right? I'm glad you had your dinner. If you want me to hear anything about the impact, I'm happy to hear that. So helping them create space where they can tell you, is there more that they would like you to do is also important. Because no one can say more to you if they're scared that you're going to melt down. Right. Absolutely. And that's what I hear a lot of people from the global majority saying. It's like, I don't got time for that. If Mm -hmm. I try to call that person out, it becomes a two-hour conversation Mm -hmm. with me taking care of them. Mm -hmm. And I just don't want to do that. If you want to hear the rest of this episode, and let me tell you, you do, head over to patreon.com slash justbetweenus. And for $3 a month, you can get access to all of our podcast episodes in full ad-free. You can also get merch for this podcast at justbetweenuspod.com or alisonraskinexposed.com. Okay, that's it. Tatala T2. Tatala T2. Just between us.